0: As we get started this morning, I want to talk about greatness. And it seems like we as a culture values greatness, right? We value winners. Last week we had winners of the World Series, regardless of how they got there and what they did to win. But um, I have some pine tar for you later. But. um, But we value winners, and so they're celebrated because they are the greatest in baseball this year. And sports is all about winning. And Tuesday, we have an election where people are like, I want to be in power. I want to change things. I want to do things my way. And so we have all these elections and all the rhetoric that happens. And, and I'm sure the two feet of, of mail, junk mail that you have from the elections, which are great for right before Christmas and starting fires and things like that. But we value greatness. And in fact, I think we we strive for greatness and people cling to it as something that they desperately want at times. I I did some searches online and and so I looked up greatness on Amazon, see if I could find a book on how to be great. And um, it came up one through 12 of over 5,000 results some of the titles were The Reality of Your Greatness. <laughs> okay? Unlocking Greatness. The Unexpected Journey from the Life You Have to the Life You Want. Interesting. The School of Greatness. The Talent Code. Greatness isn't born, it's growing. Here's how. Drive your destiny. Create a vision for your life. Build better, better habits for wealth and health and unlock your inner greatness. We're ready to go, right? Uh, Well, okay, let's narrow it down a little bit. Let's look up leadership. You know, when we talk about, Jesus is going to talk about greatness today and leadership. Let's look up leadership. That came back with over 60,000 results just in the book section on Amazon.com. That tells you a little bit of what we value and what we're striving for. I would also argue that it tells us a little bit of what we're missing Because if we're writing that many books on how to lead, that means we're not leading well as a culture. And we don't understand this. And I would propose this morning that Jesus is going to teach us it's because our paradigm is completely backwards of what leadership means, what greatness means. Let's do our own little survey. I won't be writing a book on it. But um, what makes someone great? What do you think? What makes someone great? Someone who persevered through hard times. Good, okay. Someone else. If you think of a great person that you respect, someone who helps others to achieve. Good things. Someone who helps others achieve good things. Someone who led sacrificially to give. Someone led sacrificially to give. Humility, and skill. Humility in skill. Okay, great strength of their connection to their people. Now, what you guys are describing isn't the normal paradigm. You realize that, right? Because we define greatness as a culture, as what you achieve, how much power you have, how much notoriety you have, right? That's how we often describe greatness. But this morning as we come to our text in Luke, Jesus is at the Last Supper. And last week we talked about the Last Supper and he's about to be arrested that very night. And he's about to be crucified the next day and so now he's coming to this group of 12 now 11 because judas left 11 men that are to lead the church that are to lead and take over his ministry take over his mission and spread christianity to the known world just a small task and so now he's going to give some last words to see if they're ready you'd think after three years maybe they would be ready by now maybe they'd get it by now but I don't know. We're going to talk about it. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 38. Luke 22, and we'll be looking at verses 24 through 38. And the scene, like I said, is the Last Supper. And Jesus has just gone through some really sobering statements as they ate and drank together. He just said that he would suffer, and the Son of Man came to suffer. He just said, this is the last time I'm having a meal with you until I come again with my kingdom. Multiple times now he has said, I will be killed, I will suffer, I will die. And the very last thing he said that we we talked about last week in 22-23 is one of you will betray me, which implies that things are not going to go well that night. And in verse 23, we have everyone talking, well, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And then the very next verse, and catch this, because this is what, what Jesus is going to deal with. The very next next verse, verse 24, a dispute also arose among them. So while they're talking about who's going to betray Jesus, who's going to sell out our master and send him to his death, the the dispute arose during that conversation as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Really? Really? And regarded as, how will we be seen? And and maybe they were thinking that, hey, the kingdom's about here and it's coming, but, but the, the timing of this is so amazingly bad. It would be like if you're talking with me and, and you're like, well, hey, I have cancer and I, I, the doctors have said I only have so long to live, but I'm seeking other treatments. I'm really struggling and you start to cry and I look at you and say, hey, where do you want to go to lunch? Taco Bell's pretty good. They're like, what? And that's a little bit of what the disciples are doing here. And we see their, this is not the first time they've argued about this. This topic keeps coming up, but we see their heart as, Okay, yes, yeah, stuff's happening to the master, but the kingdom's going to come. Where's my place? When, when do I get to lead? Where's my notoriety? And really, it's, it's a self-centered aspect or a self-centered attitude rather than an others-centered attitude. One author said they were arguing about who was going to be on the best disciple list. Who's going to be known as the best one as they lead the church? They were far from Jesus at this moment. They were far from his heart. They were far from his intention. They didn't get it. Now let me ask you this. If you're Jesus, what's your response? Mine would be, oh yeah? I'm going to blast you with the truth and you're doing this wrong and I'm going to just come down on you as hard as I can. But what we're going to see is Jesus' response was very different in the, in the verses that follow because he's exhibiting what he's teaching. He's an example of what true greatness looks like. And point number one as we get into these verses to look for, servanthood is the true measure of greatness. Servanthood is the true measure of greatness. Here's Jesus' answer, starting in verse 25. And he said to them, You idiots! No, no, no. (laughs) Sorry, that's my, my writing in there. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Not so, not you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who's the greater? One who reclines at a table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And we see these confused disciples that are on the wrong page at the wrong time, missing the point of what's happening. And instead of calling them idiots, Jesus starts to come alongside and show them truth and to bring them to an understanding that he wants them to have. This is a remarkable picture of patience here that I don't know that any of us would have. He didn't jump all over them, but he shows the servant leadership that he then talks about of not exercising lordship, not having to be called benefactor, but being the least, being the youngest, being the servant. I can remember one time we were at Wildwood, and um, it's a leadership camp, and especially that year we were focusing on leadership, and one of the members of our team was a little frustrated with the rest of the team. They weren't keeping up, they weren't doing what she thought they should be doing, and, um, the context was in a competition, which tends to bring out, it doesn't build character, maybe it does, but it exposes character. <laughs> and that's why they, they put some leadership challenges in the context of competition. It was awesome. And, and so finally our, our leader, the, the, the Hume worker there said, okay, you're in charge. You have a lot to say. You're in charge. And so they just start barking out orders and they go off. And, and we're all trying to follow and we have some injuries on our team and, and we're all trying to follow and within three minutes, she was gone. We had no idea where she was and we were lost. And I remember in the next five, 10 minutes trying to get the group back together and we found her because I don't really like losing students that parents allowed us to go take on camp. Um, we, we found her, we got all back together and we just debriefed right there. And we said, leadership isn't about getting there first. Leadership is about getting everyone there. And we begin to teach what servant leadership looked like. That it wasn't about lording it over. And it wasn't about coming down on people. It was about bringing them to a point of truth. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's remarkable. J. Oswald Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leadership, which if you ever read a book on leadership, that needs to be number one, other than the Bible. So number two. He wrote this, The man who is impatient with weakness will be defective in his leadership. The evidence of our strength lies not in streaking ahead, but in a willingness to adapt our stride to the slower pace of our weaker brethren while not forfeiting our lead. If we run too far ahead, we lose our power to influence. You can get that quote from me later if you're like processing it. There's a lot in that quote. But here Jesus is showing this. He's showing that he's a servant, not by bringing the hammer, but by coming alongside and saying, hey, this is where you need to go. And some gentle but leading teaching. So he didn't didn't give up leadership, but he taught in a way that would change lives. And and so let's jump into his teaching here. Verse 25, he shows us two worldly approaches to leadership, two worldly approaches to greatness. And there's probably more, but we have two in this verse. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And the first worldly approach to greatness is power. 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 And the the idea of exercising lordship over there is is a power-based leadership. It means to be master of, to dominate. You will do what I say. You will do it now because I'm in charge. And, And quite frankly, that works for about six months. And then study after study and leadership have shown it doesn't work after that because people tire of that. People get tone deaf to that and ignore that. But he says, that's what the Gentiles do. That's the leadership you're used to. We're going to dominate. We're going to be master of it. It's an authoritarian leadership that demands you follow without question. It's power. Power-based leadership. And power is intoxicating. Because we think if I had the power, everything would be different. Because I'm so perfect. But we also, I think, are, are filling some sort of sinful need in ourselves when we have power to be in charge, to feel more important. And we're boosting ourselves up as significant when the only true significance comes from Jesus Christ in doing His work. But we're trying to find all these false ways of doing this. So the position of power, exercising lordship, leads by virtue of position, power, and fear. And it is always a poor substitute for genuine leadership and genuine greatness. And so Jesus calls it out. He says, yeah, the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And I can just picture them thinking, well, yeah, we don't like that. And then he says, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. And and we don't understand the whole benefactor system, but basically the first one is about power. This one's about recognition. This one's about status. A benefactor would come alongside and say, if you do what I want, I'll give you this, but my name has to be on it. And and I need to get credit for everything that happens. So they bestowed gifts to demand loyalty and then they took all the credit. Benefactors had all these great exalted titles. Some of them even called themselves gods, little g. It's a person that's a little bit high on power. A little bit, princes were often called benefactors. The the wording there is actually uh, saying, I want recognition that anything done is done by me. And so it's the politician that takes credit for every good thing that happens in America under their watch. Now maybe they deserve some of that, but when, when one person tries to take credit for everything that happens, that's falling into the, the, the trap of recognition and status. And thinking that greatness comes from that. If I can just have enough recognition, if I can just take enough credit... And so this type of leader, and you've all been around them, this type of leader, everything is worded in the I. Everything is, look what I did, look what happened. Even if you did it, it's so frustrating, right? When you're at work and you do something and submit a report and it's awesome, and you hear the boss saying, yeah, I did this, to their boss, that's what a benefactor would do. And so we have two worldly approaches to greatness, power and recognition. And that really does sum up a lot of this world, doesn't it? And what people are seeking in this world. And Jesus is saying, no, not with my leaders. Not with the people that are going to found my church. That are going to carry on my ministry. This is a a, a subject that I actually have a real passion for in my heart. Because I'm watching leadership trends and I'm watching trends as some of our younger men and women are coming into leadership and, and the, the talk about leadership, the tone of leadership is changing in a very, very damaging way to the church, in my opinion. Because I, I, I'm hearing from people and I'm, I'm hearing pastors that are more and more saying, you have to follow me because I'm the pastor. You have to follow me because I said, and I'm God's man here, and I'm infallible. Okay, they don't say that, but but that's the implication, right? And and the, the spiritual abuse of authority I'm seeing concerns me in huge ways. I, I talk to young men sometimes, not not in our church, but and they're like, well, I, I'm the leader. They have to follow me. And so I'm going to come in and do everything I think should happen, and they must follow me because I'm the leader. And I'm like, oh, you poor man. Because that's not going to work. Because, quite frankly, they don't want to take the time and the effort to build the credibility and the credits to be able to lead well. We're in a culture that wants a fast fix, do what I say now, how I say it, rather than putting in the time to lead well. See, this isn't, giving up leadership, it's leading in a correct way. It's leadership that actually listens to people around, and and greatness that views themselves as servants and strives to bring people along in the same direction. And I would echo what Jesus said at 26, not so with you. Not so. We cannot fall into this, and so to his disciples he says you've seen it you've seen you've seen the the paradigms of power of recognition of status of taking the credit, not so with you, and he paints an upside down backwards picture of greatness that this world cannot understand. He says, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest now in 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 their culture, and a little bit in ours, we can understand this. In a family, the eldest had certain rights and privileges and responsibilities. They even got double the the share of the inheritance than anyone else. And my eldest is like, yeah, this is how it should be. The youngest then was expected to serve the rest of the family. And there was this order, uh, depending on birth order and age, there was this order of priority and importance, I guess you could say importance, of what someone was supposed to do and what authority they had. The youngest, they got the worst jobs. They got the dirtiest jobs. They got the worst seat in the car. Probably had to sit in the middle in the back. (laughs) Jesus says, you want to be the greatest? Be the youngest. Take the worst seat. Find ways to serve someone else. Don't think of yourselves as having a right to anything and demanding and taking and grasping at that authority. Rather, serve. Serve. He goes on to say in verse 26, after let the greatest among you become the youngest, he says, and the leader as one who serves. The word for serves there is to wait on tables. To to be the one that's bringing the food out, the one that's cleaning up and bussing the table that's scraping the gross food that is sort of left over off into the trash. He says, you want to be a leader? Start there. And, and it's not that you just start there, but you continue there. That's what leadership looks like. That's what great greatness looks like. If you compare the Gospel of John to this in the upper room, probably right around this time, I would think, as a response to this discussion, we see Jesus get. Well, actually, he did it earlier. Um, we see Jesus get up and put on a, a towel and wash his disciples' feet, and he's showing them what a servant looks like. He's showing them what greatness looks like, what leadership looks like. In verse 27, he goes to the world's view again. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? And they're thinking, of course, the one that reclines because the lesser guy serves and we get to relax. We get to enjoy the perks of greatness, the perks of leadership and get served. And then Jesus has the zinger here. But I am among you as the one who serves. By this point, they know he's the Messiah. They know that he is God's son. He says, I'm here to serve. I'll be the one that waits on the table. greatness comes from a humble heart of servanthood it doesn't come from power it doesn't come from recognition it comes from a humble heart of servanthood we look at this and i know we've talked about this and there's other passages where this comes up but jesus's plan for greatness isn't power it isn't recognition it's service it's concern for others not self it's not concerned with status or rank. It's concerned with doing what needs to be done to help others to accomplish the mission. And that's, that's true in real life. When we think of good leaders, it's not the ones that are doing whatever they can to make themselves look good. A good leader is the one that's doing what they can to help the organization meet the goals. And, and, and accomplish the objectives. For us as believers, a good leader is one who is serving and equipping and getting as many people to be about the Great Commission as possible. That's greatness. And if that means waiting tables, if that means plunging toilets, if that means sweeping a courtyard, praise God! Let's reach people for Christ and do whatever it takes to get there. See, self-centered leadership is I want to be in charge... And tell people what to do because I want it my way. Implied there is my way's best. Christ-centered leadership says I want to please God by serving others and considering them more important than myself. Self-centered leadership is I want recognition. Christ-centered leadership is Christ gets recognition. Christ is exalted. This is so vital to how we as believers are to interact with each other. And and, and if you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not on the elder board or the deacon board and I'm not one of the pastors, I get to sleep for the next 30 minutes. This is for all of us. Because we're all to be great in God's eyes, to be great servants, to be on task and on mission for what he wants us to do. There are reasons why when we have young men and women aspiring to leadership here and in internships here, we have them do a variety of things. Some ministry-related, And we always have some things that aren't ministry related, maybe watering plants, maybe cleaning the bathrooms, maybe putting some things away, assembling some things. And it's not that we don't want to do those because then we'd be guilty of the same thing. But a true leader and someone that truly wants to be great in God's house is going to be willing to do anything to accomplish his purposes. See, this isn't just paying dues and getting out of it. It's faithful serving for the rest of our lives. That is greatness. Think on campus. Cleanup crew showed up early this morning, picked up trash. Sometimes they pick up needles and other things you don't want your kids to see. That is greatness. God sees that. And that is greatness because it's serving the rest of the body. And you may never see who those people are. You may never know who those people are. But they are being used by God. And they are great in God's eyes. Think of the nursery workers right now. Maybe it's more helpful to think of what what would happen if we didn't have nursery workers right now. We'd have screaming and crying and gnashing of teeth. And it just... They, Their faithful service is great to God. And I could go on and on with maintenance and those that clean the bathrooms here, those that plunge the toilets here. God sees and honors those things, and we are too, to do the same. When we think of, okay, so and we can read this and say, I've heard you talk servant leadership before. I get it. I know. I want us to think two different ways of viewing this this morning, of how we put this into practice. The first is in our actions. Are we servants? Are we serving each other in our actions? And this is where our mind usually goes. So I'm starting with the obvious. This is the, the idea of, hey, if chairs need to be picked up, we pick up chairs. If tables need to be picked up, we pick up tables. I love how after a potluck or after an event, a couple people will start to pick up chairs and then boom, there's 40 people picking up chairs and tables and it doesn't just fall on one person. That's servanthood. This is thinking of I'm a servant in what I do. People that pick up trash on their way in or notice anything that that needs to happen. It might be that, that we notice that there's someone in need in the church and, and boom, meals show up or boxes for moving or whatever it is. These are ways that we serve each other. And those are the obvious actions. But the deeper level here, if we're to really understand what Jesus is saying, we have to not only be servants in our actions, but servants in our attitude. So think actions and attitude. Attitude. And an attitude is a different mindset. And if I could summarize it, I'd use Philippians 2, 3 through 5 to do it. And and that's where Paul says, consider the mind of Jesus in verse 5. But in 2 and 3, he says, we're to count others as more important than ourselves. If you want an attitude of the servant, begin to think of the other 199 people here this morning as more important than you. And that will be life-changing to know how to serve. See, yeah, on the things to do, I could give you a list of 10 and we can check them off and our hearts can still be black. But when we start to think, okay, every person in this room is more important than me, more significant than me. Now suddenly, how does that affect my conversations? As I'm talking with you, I'm not, I'm no longer now trying to fit in my story. I'm going to ask questions and hear your story. I'm no longer trying to get my way. I'm going to say, what will meet the needs, your needs? What will meet the needs of the body of Christ? We have to start thinking, how are others more important than me? How can I serve them? When we do that, we'll start to notice the hurting. We'll start to respond to those needs. We'll start to include others we'll notice the person in the gym standing by themselves because if they're more important than me then I need to go talk to them and include them when someone's doing a job alone we'll step in and be part of that with them we have to get to a point of thinking that we don't just serve but we are servants we are the youngest we are the one who waits on tables Because others are more important than us. Now, let me just clarify. This doesn't mean we don't lead. But we lead through servanthood. I've said that two or three times already. And some of the ways that that looks as leaders, those of you that are in leadership, those of you that aspire to leadership, a couple ways that look, as we lead, we always care more about the people than the task. We always care more about where the person is with Christ. And we shepherd and we pray with them. And that keeps us from steamrollering people and being part of the power mob and really caring about people. It means practically there should be nothing I ask someone else to do that I'm not willing to do myself. People know if you're just trying to get out of work, right, as a leader. But I, I won't ask anyone to do something I'm not willing to do myself. Now, there's times that I physically can't. So there's some exceptions to this. There's some people on the missions trip that, yeah, we asked to do wheelbarrows. And because of my shoulder, I couldn't do a wheelbarrow. That's not what I'm talking about. But I, I think I think they have to know that we're willing to be in the trenches and willing to serve alongside We're not leading from an ivory tower that says, you do that while I recline at the table because now we're the one reclining while someone else serves us. How do we lead through servanthood? It means we can never be a lazy leader. We can never be a lazy leader. And I see too many lazy leaders that treat leadership as an opportunity to get out of jobs. No, we're all trying to get the job done. We should always be willing to pitch in and lend a hand. I don't care what the job is. We should always be willing to pitch in and lend a hand here. There's an article I was reading from Forbes.com earlier this year, and they were reviewing a book from good to great, a little older book and a really significant book in the, in the leadership realm. And they did this study and they did a 30-year study of Fortune 500 companies and what set their leaders apart. And there were two things that came out across the board in these surveys. And they were this was revolutionary when the study came out so much that Forbes even picked it up again this year. And, and, and they have all these, uh, there's a whole article here. But they said the two characteristics that represent great leaders, number one, humility. Humility. They pointed out some exceptions, like Elon Musk and some of the other, Big names we have, and they're like, ah, those are aberrations, or, or maybe they're not leading all that great. Number two was commitment to accomplish the task. Dedication to accomplish the mission. That they would get involved and do anything they could to make it happen. It, it was sort of fun, because in the Forbes magazine article, um, it said, these, these these principles aren't really new. And they quote Jesus. <laughs> I love it when Forbes quotes Jesus and they quote the passage or a similar passage to what we're saying. They said, Jesus a long time ago said, you need to be a servant to be a leader. And and I'm like, yep, that's... We need to remember that. Power, recognition. Servanthood defeats power because we're willing to serve alongside. Recognition, we need to be willing to give the credit where credit's due to give the credit away. I know I'm spending most of my time on point number one, just so you know, we're not going until 11.30. Do you guys know who Ladanian Tomlinson is? A few, a few of my football friends do. Um, running back for the Chargers and the Broncos, right? And in 2006, he was running for the Chargers. He took his position, took the ball, sprinted around, scored a touchdown for his NFL record-breaking 29th touchdown of the season. Never been done before. Impressive as it was, what he did afterwards was what people noticed. Because instead of raising his hands in victory and dancing around, they do all this crazy stuff. I'm not going to do that right now. But um, he called his offensive line over. And he celebrated with his team. Afterwards, as he's, he's being interviewed for this, all of his interview used we and us rather than I and me. He says we this is a great accomplishment. So we accomplished it together. And he acknowledged his teammates and he acknowledged others. And it was such an incredible example of giving credit to others and giving away credit instead of saying me, 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 and mine, my, my, my That's an example of how we need to be to show greatness. We're not trying for power. We're not trying for recognition. We don't need credit in the church. We need to get the job done. That's what Jesus has left us here to do. We need to move through the rest of the text in 10 minutes. (laughs) Point number two in your notes, God rewards humble, faithful servanthood. God rewards it. may not be here, but God rewards humble, faithful servanthood. And this is for his disciples. Again, they've just said the stupidest thing at the stupidest time and he is lovingly bringing them along. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. You've been faithful the last three years. You've seen it. You've seen the attacks. You've seen the temptations. You, you, you've seen the, the, the trouble. He says, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table referring back to the Lord's Supper, now he's saying, you're going to eat and drink with me again, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, by giving up the need for recognition and power here on earth, you're going to be part of my eternal kingdom. You're going to be at me with the marriage feast of the Lamb. With me. You're going to rule with me in my kingdom. See, there will be a reward for for humble servant leadership. It may not be here. There may be things we never get credit for. Would you rather get credit a little bit of time here or would you rather sit and eat with the lamb for eternity and rule with him? So all kinds of debate about the 12 tribes of Israel. I'm not going to go there this morning. We can talk about that offline if you want and and who's being ruled here and who's in the millennial, millennial kingdom but know that God rewards humble, faithful servanthood. And then we get to 31 through 34. And and this is a bad example of what Jesus is talking about. And then he's going to give himself as a good example in the verses that follow. Point number three, Peter's proud greatness must be replaced by humble dependence on God to truly influence others. I know it's a mouthful. Let me read it again. Peter's proud greatness must be replaced by humble dependence on God to truly influence others. And so we don't know. Maybe Simon was one of the louder voices in this discussion of who's the greatest. Not outside the realm of possibility with who we know Peter is. But, but Jesus looks at his disciples and he uses Simon's name, Simon, Simon, to get his attention. Behold, Satan demanded, or asked in some versions, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. In the process of sifting like wheat, they'd use these screens and put the wheat and the chaff and sometimes little gravel things and they'd sift it out and they, they were trying to get the bad parts away from the good parts. But he's saying, Satan wants to, to, to sift you. Interesting, in this verse, in verse 31, the yous there are all you alls. So he's talking to all of his disciples. He's like, Satan's about to attack you. And and this is in the context of talking about greatness and leadership, and he's preparing them. But then he switches to the singular because he's talking to Peter. He says, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I'm good. I'm not fallen. I added a little bit in there. 34. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Wow. Wow. We've heard, we've heard Jesus predict this as we've studied through Matthew and as we studied through Mark. But a couple things I want to notice here. The context is who's the greatest. And Peter is like, in one of the other uh, um, Gospels, he even says, even if all others fall away, I won't. What's he saying? I'm the greatest. I'm the top of the best disciple list. (laughs) Yeah. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're not. In fact, you're all going to be tested. And Peter, you're going to fall. You're going to fall. Catch verse 32 though. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And I've got to say, some of you are prayer warriors, and I value your prayers and I cherish your prayers. But when Jesus says he'll pray for me, that wins. This is an amazing statement. It's why we sang the song Mediator this morning. Because he is mediating our salvation with God. He is taking our sin on him that we couldn't take ourselves. But he's also interceding for us and praying for us in heaven right now. And he says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Most commentators, most scholars say that that means, yeah, he might fall, but his faith won't be completely gone. He won't walk away from God. And when you have turned again, and the word there is repented. And so Jesus is giving him hope, even though he's going to deny him. And don't miss the hope here. He says, and when you've turned again, when you've realized what you've done, when you've come back to me, because our God is a God of restoration. There is no sin that keeps us from our God. If we repent and turn to him. He says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he's showing Simon He's showing Peter how to be great even in failure. He says, when you fail, when, when, you're, when, when you've denied me, when you've denied that you know me, repent, turn around, follow me, let me forgive you, and then use that to influence others. Use that to strengthen others. And it actually is a promise. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's a quote by by a pastor, a a Puritan pastor. He says, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He is praying for you. Don't forget you have an advocate in Jesus Christ our Lord. Peter's proud greatness must be replaced by humble dependence on God to truly influence others. Jesus says, I'm going to pray for you. Prayer is an act of dependence. I'm going to pray for you. We're going to be dependent on God. Peter says, I'm good. Jesus says, no, you're not. You need to depend on God. Final section. We need to end. Jesus is the servant as he prepares his followers for trouble and goes to the cross. Jesus is the servant. His example of servanthood. He's preparing. He's equipping. He's building into His followers. He's preparing them for trouble. But ultimately, by going to the cross in our place to die a death we couldn't die, to pay for sins we couldn't pay for. Verse 35, And He said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And He's referring back in Luke 9 where He he sent them out. And He says, Don't take anything. I'll provide And so what he's reminding them is God is faithful, right? As we go through things, we need to train our minds to start thinking of all the times God has been faithful because now we're speaking truth. We're speaking the truth of the gospel into our hearts. And he reminds them, did you lack anything? They're like, no. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And he's preparing them that now things are different. You're not going to be accepted. You're going to have trouble. You need to be prepared for trouble. All kinds of talk about did Jesus really advocate buying swords here and attacking the Romans? No. This, this is a metaphor probably that's saying be ready for trouble. It would be like if I, I said keep your powder dry. It's an old old term back when, when people used flintlock rifles. But now we still use that term. I'm not literally saying go home and check your gunpowder. That'd be a little weird. (laughs) But I'm saying be ready, right? And Jesus is saying be ready for opposition. Be ready for trials. They don't get it. They take it literally as we'll see in the the last um, verse. But verse 37 is a key verse here. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he quotes Isaiah fifty three twelve here. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And Jesus here is referring to what's going to happen in the next 24 hours. The climax of the story as he's going to be arrested and treated as a a, a criminal, numbered with transgressors, is treated as a criminal. He's going to be treated as a criminal. He's going to be hung between two criminals. But more than that, he's numbered with the transgressors because he takes on your sin and my sin on himself, in his body. And as he dies, he feels the weight of that and the wrath of God and pays the penalty for our sins. He will be numbered with the transgressors. So we don't have to be. This is amazing good news because every one of us in this room has sinned and we have, we have done things that we know are wrong that are in violation of who God is and His character. And the penalty for that in Romans 6.23 is death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our, our Son, our, our Lord. And he's referring here to on that cross He was numbered with the transgressors as He took my sin on Himself and died a death I was supposed to die so I could follow him and live with him for eternity. If you have never made a decision to follow Christ and repent of your sins and give your sins to him, that is what awaits you. That's what Jesus is offering. He's saying, come to me. Come, repent, give me your life, and I will give you eternal life because I've already paid for your sins. But we resist so many times. This village is the ultimate act of greatness. It's the ultimate act of leadership as he died on the cross in our place to enable us to follow him. You want to be great? You want to follow a path to greatness that Jesus lays out? Be willing to die to self and serve one another and help others walk with God. Verse thirty eight, I just have to we we can't leave it. And they said, Look, Lord, here's two swords. Dolts? No. <laughs> they miss even what he said about number of transgressors. They miss the, the the gravity of the moment, and they're doing an inventory saying, We don't even have to go buy swords. We can save our money. We've got two. And Jesus answers, It's enough. Come on. Enough of the silly talk. He's not saying that two swords are are enough against the Roman army. He's saying, and the wording there in the Greek is enough of this discussion. This isn't what I was talking about. You missed the point. The point is be ready, but follow me. And Jesus dealt with his disciples in a leadership way, but in a servant loving way. But ultimately, he is the ultimate servant that died on the cross for our sins, that gave all, because he considered salvation a gift worth giving. Let's follow his path to greatness. And remember don't pursue power, don't pursue recognition, pursue serving others, viewing others as more important than ourselves. Then we've learned the lesson the disciples are trying to learn at this point. Let's pray. Lord God, oh, I pray for the church in America and the leaders of the church in America and those teaching Sunday school classes and involved in ministries. I pray that our heart would get over trying to do these things for ourselves and see ourselves as servants. Servants with no rights. Servants that only exist to do your work servants that seek to glorify you and elevate you, Lord God, may we be great in your eyes and not so great in this world's eyes. Lord, change our paradigms, change our hearts. Help us to be servants like you. In your name, amen.